If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 5, we've made it. We began this journey through the letter of 1 John back in October, and here we are concluding this message. As I sent the email out on Friday, hopefully many of you have been challenged as I have been through the letter, but more importantly, encouraged. You know, this is what John's purpose was in writing this letter, that they might know that they have eternal life. So in many respects, um, it's been a wonderful journey for me, and I hope and pray it's been that way for you. The title of today's message, if you've already seen, is, is somewhat unique and different, especially for me. I'm kind of vanilla when it comes to titles, but you can see this one, since we know that we know, now what? So, that said, let's jump in to this message, our last message of 1 John. I want to begin with an interesting observation for the majority of us. I'm sure that we all would agree that health insurance is somewhat of a necessity. If you've ever experienced, as I have, a transition from one provider to another... It can certainly be somewhat complicated and challenging to navigate. There's just simply an abundance of sophisticated information that at times is hard to correlate or to bring together. It's for this very reason that companies typically compile what's called a summary of benefits. You guys understand this. You've seen this. A sort of um, dumbed down, if I can say for myself, explanation for common folk of what we need to know about the insurance. Even from a public speaking perspective, this can be helpful. As the speaker at times will take time to summarize what he's just articulated. And this is all in hopes that the message would be ingrained in the hearer's mind. Moreover, and we've mentioned this before several times throughout this letter, but repetition is another vital element when it comes to apprehension. We've seen a lot of repetition throughout 1 John. And by all means, we need to be reminded of the things that are near and dear to our hearts. Up until this point, John's mentioned the two words, we know, ten different times throughout the letter. He surely has sought to remind them of what they knew. For instance, just to name several, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, They knew him through his commandments. In chapter 3, verse 14, they knew that they had passed out of death to life. Or in chapter 4, verse 13, they knew the assurance of the Spirit. Or, as we discussed last week in chapter 5, verse 15, they knew the power of prayer. 
all worthwhile reminders indeed, not just for the churches of Asia Minor, for us here today. Here in these concluding four verses, he once again, if you've already started to peruse the passage, uses we know four different times again in these four last verses. This is not surprising considering John's desire to remind them of their assurance and their encouragement and their security in Christ. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I steal that from Vody Bacham. I can't take credit for it, but I like it, so I may say it off and on. In addition to the benefits of summarizing and repetition, there's another aspect of persuasive speech that is often helpful and fruitful as well. It consists of a call to action, or in some context, an actual command. Given John's context as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, in, these, in this last verse of the entire letter, he gives a command to these churches, a sort of call to action. As he writes his final section, his theme of overall assurance is once again on display. He wants them to know that for the Christian, Christ is his strength, is his security. Something we all need to be reminded of on a daily basis. Amen? As for us this morning, we'll ask the question that handles the comments John's, John makes concerning his summary of benefits. And then we'll finalize the message with a question revolving around his command. I want us to answer the question, what do we know and how do we respond? We'll look at three certainties in response to the question, what do we know? And then we'll ask one question of how we'll respond. With that said, would you stand with me, please? As we read our final passage and look to finish strong in this exposition of 1 John. Our passage for this morning is chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. All, or let me, forgive me, that's verse 17, beginning with verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 
little children. Guard yourselves from idols. You may be seated. Our first certainty in response to that question, what do we know, is number one, the protecting one. We'll look at this considering verse 18. Look again at the first half of verse 18. We read, We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, coming off the heels of what we examined last week in the preceding context, this statement makes perfect sense. For the Christian, there is a sin not leading to death. If you recall from our exposition last week, yes, the wages of sin is death, but praise the Lord, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, notwithstanding. We also know this cannot mean that we never sin. This obviously would be a contradiction of Scripture. Yes, as Paul clearly states in Romans chapter 6, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Thanks be to God for that truth and certain certainty. Yet, at times, as was the case for Paul, and is the case for us, All of us, at times, we do the things we hate. Sin. Although, we do not habitually, from an ongoing perspective, practice them. The true Christian does not do such things. John has clearly made this. A truth that we all understand, obvious throughout the letter. We've seen it throughout his context. Perhaps chapter 3 verse 9 being the best example. When he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. So why does the Christian not sin? It's because God's seed is abiding in us. We have been born of God. Now, as you can see, John alludes to this supernatural birth in verse 18 as well. Chapter 5, this is now the sixth time that John's used this phrase every time leading up until now to describe a Christian. What's more, and this is a significant point, every time that he has used this phrase, even up until this this point, he uses with the exact same original grammar Why is this important? It communicates a powerful security and confidence within the text. 
It relates to the force behind this protecting one. Why can we have confidence and assurance against sin? It's because Christ is the first and initiating cause in all areas of Christian experience. Those who've been born of God have received this supernatural birth. A birth that has nothing to do with man and God cooperating together. This would be a contradiction itself. John has already told us, we love because he first loved us. Or to reference Paul again from Romans chapter 8, he states, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. To God, this birth has everything to do with a sovereign work of grace apart from man. Moreover, a work that continues to produce fruit. You see, friends, once again, it's about this God-centered theology versus a man-centered theology. What God began in you, He will bring to completion. And here's the key when it comes to confidence for today. This work that he began in you pertains to not only your salvation, but it includes your protection against sin and the afflictions that come along with it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, we read, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Power, security, assurance, and encouragement in this protecting, sovereign work of God in your life. Be strong, soldiers for Christ. You no longer represent the enemy. You've been given a new assignment, and a supernatural commission, one in which you will certainly be victorious. And why is that? Because your commander-in-chief has decreed it so. With that said, John goes on to illustrate this protection even more in the remaining section of verse 18. Look again. He states, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, right away, it's critical to address this phrase, born of God, again. Why is that the case? Behind the scenes of this text, there's a big change in the original grammar. One that's critical for interpretation. Previously, 
all the uses of John's use of this phrase, born of God, always referred to the Christian, as we just alluded to. Why the change in the original grammar? It's because for the first time, he's not speaking of the Christian, but he's speaking of Christ. This is Christ, the one who came forth from the Father, the one who is keeping the Christian, the one who is keeping the Christian from even being touched by the evil one. And this word to keep is often used of a guard protecting or keeping watch over. We often see it within prison accounts in the New Testament. As we all can attest, we were once prisoners to sin, now prisoners to Christ, willing prisoners to this good God and good guard. One who only desires good for you, who desires to guard and protect and to keep you. One who watches over us, always protecting us from the prison world that surround us. And likewise, the God of this prison world, Satan himself. Jesus, speaking of his disciples, stated it as such in John 17, verse 12, when he said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Beloved, just as Christ was protecting the disciples, he's protecting you. We see that even in the remaining context of that high priestly prayer as he intercedes for his children. Moreover, he's keeping the evil one from touching you. Now, perhaps for some of us, a question immediately arises. Does this mean that we're free from all forms of harm, if that's what this word means? What about Job as an illustration? It's almost as if God opened the door for Job to be harmed. In Job chapter 1 verse 8 we read, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? What's going on here? Is this a contradiction? course not you know the account indeed it was the Lord who allowed for Job to be afflicted however 
And here's the key. Never allowing him to ultimately and truly be spiritually harmed. Do not fear, friends. The protecting one, the one who caused you to be born again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, by the imperishable seed of the word of God, the one who came forth from the Father is guarding you, is protecting you from the evil one. Will he at times allow for Circumstances that on a human sense seem to be harmful? We know the answer to that question. Of course he will. If it had not been for the Gnostic threat within these churches, this letter perhaps of fundamental training that was needed, would not have been needed, although it was critical for them. It's critical within the revealed word of God for us. When your storm of affliction is on the horizon, or you're in the midst of it even now, hold to the certainty of the protecting one. Never forget, even in the midst of what seems to be on the surface, harm, affliction, despair, turmoil, a tornado, a hurricane of destruction, God is working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. To quote Job again, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your affliction, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you believe that? Is that your confidence? Is that your encouragement? Is that your rest here This morning, dear saint. Moreover, as another point of illustration, John uses this same word concerning even the protection of his church during the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 states, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That is a promise to the church in which one day, one generation will fully experience this firsthand, this protecting, this guarding influence as they are kept from the hour of testing, which we understand is the seven years of a future tribulation to come. 
That said, would we still rest in our certain protection today? Your certain security, your certain rest, your certain protection. So, if protection is clearly encouraging for us in the midst of this chaotic world in which we've been called to live and operate for Christ, clearly our sanctification is just as fruitful. And that's our second certainty. Number two, the sanctifying one. The sanctifying one. Look again at verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, turn back, if you will, to chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And I want us to make a connection of, with some of John's previous comments, which, have, which certainly would have been on the minds of the original audience as they read what we just read. In chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, John had already previously spoken these truths to them when he said, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Turn back to chapter 5. John's point of emphasis here within that passage and then leading up to his conclusion here relates to the believer's separation from the world. What we just read in chapter 4, he states, you are from God. We are from God. Or in verse 19, we are of God. And we've seen these clear lines of distinction drawn throughout this letter multiple times. Whether it be those who are walking in the light compared to those who are walking in the darkness. Those who live and practice truth. Those who live a lie. Or the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 19, we read, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Because of this, the world hates you. Or, 
What about that strong charge from the Apostle James in chapter 4, verse 4? When he stated, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Nevertheless, why is Scripture so concerned with the believer being separate of the world? One reason is because, as the verse states, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. For what fellowship does light and darkness have? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we hear of this power of the evil one. And Paul writes there, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Satan is indeed a roaring lion seeking to destroy and to devour. And as this verse indicates... The whole world is in his power. For many, perhaps at times you're discouraged by this world and the power behind it. But, oh, friends, take comfort. Does this term here, the whole world, apply to every single person in the world? Does it include you? Did John intend to communicate for these believers that they were under the power of the evil one? Of course not. He's just reminded them. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Hallelujah. Of course. Living in that type of context, I'm sure it would have seemed as though an onslaught of Satan's power was infiltrating these churches as they struggled with this threat false teaching and false doctrine. Although John is reminding them here a very important truth and what we all need to be reminded. We know we are of God. When you feel the weight of conformity to this world, remember the sanctifying one. The one, as Peter states, called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Or as John states, even within this letter, walk in the light 
as he is in the light. As for Asia Minor, there were clearly issues with the church being led astray. False teachers are always lurking. As for us, as Solomon would say, nothing news under the sun. The church will always be bombarded with constant pressure to cave in to the shifting sands of culture and the world in order that we appease that world. Friends, let us continue to remain steadfast, bold, and courageous against the winds of culture and the world. The sanctifying one has called you to not be ashamed of the gospel. And even within the context of that charge, Paul spoke it in a culture where it would have been very difficult to say such thing. The Christian was not looked upon as one to be encouraged, but to be persecuted. And he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here we stand in a day and age where we build these beautiful edifices. Where we have, at least within our country, freedom of religion. And yet at times, we act as though we're ashamed of the gospel. God has called us to be set apart. Do not be surprised when that happens. And as John states, the world hates you. The great Welch preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said it so well when he said the following. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Is that your heart, beloved? Amen. So, how do we become more aware of these great certainties? It's all about this word and the one who reveals it. And that's our third certainty. In response to the question, what do we know? Number three, the revealing one. Look again at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God and eternal life. Now, 
Let's break this down a little. Before dealing with the significance of this word understanding. First off, what did they know? As we can see from the text. They knew the Son of God came. They knew He is the true God. And they knew they were in Him. That is, true believers. As John would state, those who practice righteousness. That said, what, what was John's intention in these reminders? To begin with, he's demonstrating that salvation is much more than just an intellectual event. It's experiential as well. We might say it's, it's, it's in the head, but it's also in the heart. They knew that Christ had came intellectually. Yet they also knew with full conviction, He is the true God. He is the eternal one. And they were abiding in Him. What's more, He's reminding them, and this is clear to see within the text, of the divinity and the humanity of Christ. This would have clearly been a sort of last final assault on the Gnostic threat that challenged both of these natures of God. You'll remember one of our first messages the divine and incarnate one. Additionally, he's once again reminding them of the simplicity of knowing Christ. Another attack against the so-called special knowledge that the Gnostics espoused in order to know Christ. Nevertheless, At the end of the day, if the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, then do we have a problem? Those of you that are in Christ, you know the answer to that. Never. We know. We are from God. We have been born of God. Believers are not the natural persons. (laughs) Praise the Lord for sovereign grace. For we were conceived in iniquity. And Psalms 51 states, continually pursuing the lust of our flesh. Yet, God has given us understanding, as the verse indicates. Now, 
as you see my enthusiasm for this word understanding. I'll ask a question. Why is this understanding beyond encouraging? And that's why I'm so excited to share it with you here today. I believe wholeheartedly when we become more aware of what the revealing one has done on your behalf, I promise you, your confidence, your assurance, your security will soar to greater heights. Not in your own strength, but in the one who has revealed the truth to you in your second birth. And the one who will continue to do so. This word understanding, it carries the idea of a total transformation, a redirecting of disposition or nature. All of us should say, praise the Lord. In light of that, given our nature apart from the grace of God, totally depraved as it is. Even thinking of Paul's great list of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. The swindlers, the revilers, the thieves, the homosexuals, the greedy, the idolaters. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, what does he say on the back half of that verse? Such were some of you. Now, in order to have a greater appreciation for this understanding in light of what I just referenced, I want you to listen to two following negative contrasts of the same word, understanding. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, being darkened, in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. We all feel the weight of that life we formerly lived, those of us that are in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 reads, And although... You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That is a perfect picture of the nature of man apart from the grace of God. Yet, beloved, God gave you understanding. He changed your disposition He changed your nature. You were born of God. God, according to His choice, gave us supernatural understanding. He is the revealing one. What's more, 
And here's the assurance. Apart from our understanding that we received that salvation, His revealing truth does not stop at the moment He revealed it to you at the point of your rebirth. It continues, friends, until glorification. This glorious truth is clearly revealed from Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, when he states, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers, sisters, soldiers in Christ, the golden chain of redemption will never be broken. Hallelujah. That's ultimate security. That's ultimate encouragement. Encouragement in the certainty that God will never stop giving us understanding concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we all bow before and say, holy is he. So, as we discussed in the introduction, a call to action is often a powerful element of persuasive speech. That said, let's look at John's final command of the letter and ask our question for application. That's number four. Our question simply, now what? Look at verse 21. John states, little children, guard yourselves from idols. In verse 18, we spoke of the guarding that Christ performs as the protecting one. Here in this final verse, John focuses on their responsibility. Their responsibility to guard themselves against idols. This word idol, it could be defined as a a false god or something that takes the place of God. John is clearly concerned that they be on guard against anything that can take the place of God. Obviously, this would have affected their assurance and their security and their encouragement. Hence, even his reason for writing the letter as a whole. And likewise, regarding that concern, it's interesting to make note of all of the commands throughout this letter. Each of them, nearly all, minus one, written from a guarding perspective. For example, in chapter 2, verse 15, he stated, don't love the world. 
Chapter 3, verse 7, he said, let no one deceive you. All of these are commands. Chapter 3, verse 13, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Chapter 4, verse 1, don't believe every spirit. Test them. And then here, to close, guard yourself, little children, against idols. You can hear him as if he's crying out to them. John wants his last words to be lasting words. He wants them to rest in the certainty of the protecting one, the sanctifying one, and the revealing one. However, he's also very concerned of the destructive power of idols within their lives. So much so, his last words are a command to be on guard against them. With that said, let's close with our question. Now what? I want to offer just a couple thoughts regarding potential idols in light of our three certainties, all the while understanding that the Spirit may even reveal to you something separate of what I share. And if that's the case, beloved, guard yourself against idols. As for the protecting son... Guard yourself against an overemphasis upon man, a reliance upon man. Perhaps your spouse, perhaps a friend, perhaps a coworker. For some, it's even governmental reliance. Friends. They cannot, nor will they ever substitute for the one and only protecting one, the one who will not allow the evil one to touch you. Man will inevitably let you down. But he will never forsake you nor leave you. Regarding the sanctifying one, as you know, you've been called to be separate from the world. We can reference John's comments from earlier in the letter. Beware the lusts of the flesh. Beware the lusts of the eyes. Beware the boastful pride of life. This world is chalked full with billboards of depravity. Beware the distractions. 
Beware the idols that take the place of God. The one in whom you love, the one in whom he shed his blood for you, the one who keeps you, guards you, and protects you. Is there something even today in which you feel you need to guard yourself against concerning being separate of the world? And then finally, the revealing one. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Don't ever forget, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Be on guard against a man-centered theology regarding this word of understanding. A theology that would champion the strength and the power that is within you. This is undoubtedly a slippery slope. One which often substitutes the absolute authority of Scripture alone. Versus the human rationality of sinful man. Oh, beloved. Guard yourselves against idols. Know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is your strength and your security. Bow with me. Lord Jesus, we come before you here this day, the Lord's Day, a day where we celebrate the resurrection from the grave, a historical event, but yet a supernatural event, which gives us hope. Lord, if it not be for the resurrection, our faith would be in vain. But yet it is certain, it is true, and you have conquered death and sin. And because of this, Lord, we can know that we have eternal life. Those who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb. Those that have been redeemed and rescued and set free from the bondage of sin. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your sanctification. Thank you that you have given us understanding through the revelation of your word. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your word. And create in us a hunger, a thirst, a passion to know the surpassing value of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.